By the way, you don't you don't have to explain. It's complex. I know. I'm 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 actually a doctor. <laughs> like you, like yeah. There's a lot of factors and all of that stuff. Like when when I make comments, it's not meant to be like. It's with a gigantic amount of background knowledge I make these comments. Like it's not like, it's not like oh I'm just trying to generalize one statement. So never like never assume that what I say is like a pure like statement of absolution. It's, there's always nuance to all of it. Like that's just what it is. But I'm just saying in general. It comes to food and stuff like the there there is some group of people that really dwell on that a lot and that's where whole foods makes a bunch of money because they have grocery stores that can sell you like shit that's like three times more expensive for organic this and that and there's a whole market for it um i'm just saying like if you keep it really simple if you look at what kills most people it's pretty much excess calories and sugar like that's like what i see die every day yeah um, yeah so if you want to come to me and die like just eat too much food yeah, and and I'm surprised food. that you're saying this because like you understand that your body is an input output machine. Your brain is an input out, output machine. If you're eating sugar all day long, you're not going to be functioning right. If you're eating sure. ramen noodles every single day, like you, I, do, I would it's, actually pose there's <clears throat> not many things more important than your diet. And and you and your exercise and your sleep. Mm, I don't know. Most of my family members like, make it to ninety. What is more important than that? Huh? It, it depends. Like most of my family members make it to like ninety-ish, and they don't care about what they eat. So it's it really just depends it's on genetic. the particular genetic yeah, genetics and all too. Yeah, like it's not one size fits all at all. You so say like, and you they don't a, care what they eat, but it's like, what are they picking up? Are they like drinking Coca Cola every day? Yeah, if look you, at like, that for example. I'll give an example. If you're a Native American in the United States, like let's say you're from Mexican origin or Central American origin, or whatever, kind of Native American blood kind of um, thing, um, you have you have an expected very short lifespan. You ex you're expected to get very fat if you eat any excess of calories. And by excess, I mean like north of 1,200 calories a day, you're going to get fat. Um, and you're very likely going to die very early and you're going to see me in a hospital dead. And how do I know this? Because that's who comes to me at that age. I don't see Native Americans at like... I don't know, 90 years old very often. It's pretty uncommon because they're dead by then. So like, yeah, genetics has a role and clearly eating bad things is worse for you depending what proclivities you have. So for example, if you have like a strong family history of diabetes, you probably ought not to gain a whole lot of weight. Bad idea. Insulin Finding the space to be a little bit racist. There's a lot of bit of yep. talk about some races living longer than others and it's making me a bit uncomfortable. Well, what if, what is the point of this? Are you saying just eat what you want because you guys are not master race like me, whatever your master race is? No, and no. So we're I'm all just saying like it's not. Uh, don't dwell upon like any particular food type. Like, okay, don't eat milk or don't eat bread or whatever. I think it's really like the number one thing is not the type of things you eat. So if I'm at talking to a patient, like ninety percent of people won't actually follow a fucking thing you say. By the way. So it won't matter how much you think your specific food matters or doesn't matter. People don't care. And this is just a human thing. So like if 90% of people aren't going to follow any specified like strategy anyway, you have to give people a simple strategy. And that simple strategy typically is eat less amount, keep the portion small, eat less sugar probably. After that, if you want to do all sorts of rabbit hole stuff about vitamins and whatnot, yeah, you could do all those things for sure. But the vast majority of people aren't dying in America, at least from lack of, say, for example, a vitamin or like drinking too much milk or something like that. It's almost always just sheer total quality, 
total calories. And it almost doesn't matter what you eat. Like too many calories of anything is pretty much all that matters at that point. That's all I'm saying. So like when you complexify it to like specific foods and this and that, you just basically lose your audience. And that's, that's all that's, that's going to happen. Um, like, so Dean, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. How many people actually stop smoking when you tell them to stop? Like people with like cancers and, or just generally actually, if you tell them to um, stop. Like... Yeah, like the data on if a doctor tells a patient to stop smoking is about 3%. About 3%. Like if you tell them in the office to quit smoking. Does that mean you could say it to them like 34 times and then they would stop 100% of the time? Uh, like each person's different. Like, for example, one person will have a, a heart attack and you'll be like, okay, you've, you've got stents in your heart. And if you smoke again, you're going to drop dead. So I'm usually pretty like viscerally like brutal about this sort of thing. I'm like, smoke again, just just like prepare your funeral, have a box ready. I'll put you in it when you get here. So I'm extremely like aggressive when it comes to making you stop whatever you're doing i'll be like go find another fucking doctor don't do see me just go ahead and you, die do you have a higher than three percent conversion rate because yes. they respect you yeah so it's almost most of my clinics like 90 percent will have quit smoking for me whereas like normally it's about three percent average do you so, think if a doctor is attractive versus unattractive they would get different percentages of people to stop smoking if they asked them to I don't know. The whole thing's a psyop, right? You're basically trying to convince someone to do something that's very difficult to stop doing. Um, and like, how, how do you do that? Like, some people that triggers fear. Some people it's finances. Some people it's pain. Some people it's like legacy, or some people it's like, well, what happens if I die? Like, like who's going to be around to take care of my kids or whatever? There's always like something. Mm-hmm. There are people that like are so self-destructive that they truly don't care. Um, they couldn't be bothered. It doesn't matter. Like if they die, it's fine, whatever. So there's a lot of people like drink and do drugs and stuff that are like that. I think that like, that is a very interesting like group to sort of think about. And what usually happens is the stuff that you care about that got you to be overweight, to be like smoking, to be drinking, whatever, like you're just thinking wrong. And the the wrong thing to do is to try to make it complicated to try to get them to quit. Usually it's like threat of existence that makes you stop doing something uh, yeah. that's really particularly bad for you. Not really like um, like lectures about like, you know, like the biochemistry of milk or something. Like you can get into yeah. the deep details and that'll occasionally work for a specific nerd. But vast majority of the time it won't work. Like you it's much more like think about it like a lot of people that smoke drink and eat too much are plenty smart it's not a question of intellect usually um it's some function of like impulse control or something else and you can't like you can't always get to them with logic necessarily so that's where that's where most people fail in like making an actual change i don't know bruce like when you do like psycho you know like not psychotherapy but like when you do like meditative sessions and things and people ask you for like i need life coaching and I need to change who I am or whatever. Like, what kind of things do you find that work, like, to actually change people? Um, You're talking to me? Yeah. Like, some people, yeah, like, like, some people really want a utility out of, like, meditation or out of a doctor visit or whatever, right? Like, Mm. you convinced me to do this. You make me a better, like, you know, like, better pilot or something. (laughs) Like, you know, like, people come to you for stuff like that, right? I have a lot of um, funny stories to tell about 
meditation teaching, but another time, I think. I've got to order something to eat because I've not eaten all day. Okay. And it's late. Yeah, actually, uh, let me sort of see if Bloom has anything to say, but like, I was going to break here as well. Time to catch. Uh, I do, but I couldn't raise my hand because I'm on PC and the, and the PC doesn't have a little hand. So thanks for asking. Oh, no, you're fine. Go ahead. Just so, jump in. Listening to what you were saying, I mean, I do agree that it's important to not complicate things for people that are trying to make a change in their lives because changes, you know, they're gradual. And if you overwhelm people with even information, it might discourage them to do anything. But I do have something to point out when it comes to the food that there are like people that live in the United States. There are a, a few, if not at least a couple of ingredients, I think that they should be aware of that if they keep consuming them. Nothing in their child in their life is going to change, even if they start doing some slight exercising, drinking less. But when it comes to high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated oils, I think that if you if if people keep eating that at least once or twice a week, their metabolism is just never going to recover. But I, I don't know what you have to say about that, like how it interacts with your your blood sugar levels and other calories after you have a high fructose corn syrup in a, in a meal or even your breakfast. Well, usually it's those things that wind up getting you the excess calories and the excess uh, sugar. Like, like the nuances, you can kind of even skip all that. If you just take like, if you were to just take, no matter what you ate, if you only ate like, let's say, I don't know, uh, 1,400 calories a day, for example, and that's it, then you're going to do fine. Like it's that simple. Like it almost doesn't matter what the nuances are. But is it actually possible to reduce your appetite if you're using things like yeah high fructose corn syrup and like carbohydrates and all that all day um the problem is you it's hard to modify your mind to be in that more fasting mode um and i think like food is extraordinarily addictive and sugar is extraordinarily addictive it's actually more addictive than um like even heroin or um even more addictive than nicotine so the thing is like what you're saying is true but does it actually matter if it's high fructose corn syrup or regular sugar it really doesn't matter like your brain is addicted to it either well, way and uh, breaking that addiction is really difficult. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. All right. So I can't say that I'm a, a, an expert on this, but what I have read and when it comes to nutrition and stuff like those ingredients is that high fructose corn syrup, it's a molecule that's so refined that you can't really filter it as well as other sugars. And it just spikes your blood sugar level so much and so high, like the glu glucemic index and, and all that stuff that it just, it's almost like you ate five times more sugar, uh, even even if you compare the same amount of calories. So that cycle that you're talking about gets like um, supercharged, right? So and and I've seen that. Okay, yeah, you you can reduce your caloric intake, I but um, I don't know. Like biologically, there's any difference um, from like a pure perspective from like uh, fructose versus sucrose versus glucose in terms of any kind of like direct definite effect. Um, but like one thing that is true is like in the U S like a lot of food is laced with high fructose corn syrup, like even like bread and shit will have, you know, like sugar baked oh, into it, your French fries at McDonald's or whatever. Ketchup. So like you're getting a lot of excess, like let's say you drank, like you only had a little bit of high fructose corn syrup a day. You had like, I don't know, Coca-Cola a day or something. You're probably fine. But if the problem is, is that like, it's very difficult to do any of this shit in moderation. That's the problem. It's like, it's almost like, it's really tough. So, you know, it is like, uh, to keep it simple, I think like the first thing, like if you want to take this in steps, right, 
the first thing a person needs to do is just basically whatever they're putting on their plate, cut that shit in half. If you're overweight, there's no fucking way you're losing weight by like cutting out one little thing or the other. Your actual total calories probably need to be cut in half more than likely. And then you can like come back and say, okay, doc, like I've, uh, for the last month I've cut my plate in half, like, you know, or I've got just a smaller dinner plate, you know, like use smaller plates and you're going to fill only this. And I've only eaten this much and I've made it. I've done that. Now I'm like, okay, I'm going down this rabbit hole. I've heard corn, you know, syrup and whatever else and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, don't, I shouldn't drink too many like, you know, <laughs> sugars or whatever juices, whatever it is, like pick your little dietary like rabbit hole. Um, you'll find something wrong with practically every type of food, just about, right? Except for like maybe like straight fruits and vegetables or something, but who's eating substantial quantities of those? Probably nobody. Um, so the reality is like you have to reach a point of something sustainable. And the problem is, as most people have, is um, like between time and the preparation of food and acquisition of certain things, are you going to actually acquire something that's sustainable? Or are you going to do something fancy for like a week and then quit? And the reality is probably 95% of people just do something fancy and quit. In fact, obesity in America, like 95% of people who are morbidly obese cannot both lose 50 pounds and keep it off. 95%. The odds you're going to be successful by learning to some health guru is 5%. Everyone else dies sooner. That's that simple. So like, like the, the, the data is pretty much straight up abysmal to the extent that like human free will as it pertains to like what we eat and how much we can moderate is extremely bad. If you're lucky that you have a metabolism that is either quick in the sense that you don't um, gain much weight, or perhaps you just have a stomach that doesn't tend to require much food for satiety, or, you know, you're just genetically slim or something, um, then you're in good shape. And everybody else um, pretty much gets in trouble with almost anything they eat in America, it almost doesn't matter what it is. Like the vast majority, like there's more people dying of obesity today than any kind of starvation by any, by like by a wide stretch. And if you look at the number of people with sleep apnea, um, diabetes, right heart failure related to sleep disorder breathing, um, I bury someone every week with these problems in the age between 40 and 60, every week with one of these diseases. So it's not like even like there generally can be worse than cancer in a sense. Um, people focus on cancer. Cancer is something that's a luxury that you can get. Like if you can live long enough to get cancer, you've done pretty good. Um, I'd say like uh, cancer is like a natural effect of living long enough because eventually you'll have, you know, you have always like being attacked with carcinogens and whatever else. And, you know, sitting there wondering about how not to get cancer is just an idiot's fool's errand for the most part. It's a waste of time. You're not going to make much progress in that. Like the number one thing you can do really is just simply not get too fat, die of a heart attack, slash stroke, slash, you know, overweight related complications, heart failure, and whatever else. So like, if you were to ask me, like in the age sub 60, am I, is my biggest problem in ICU, people are dying of uh, like what cancer? The answer is no, not even close like not even, not even a little bit close. So it's like a far, far um, lesser problem as far as like cause of death and some of the more obvious stuff, but it's really tough to solve. Like, what are you going to do about your, you know, your proclivities towards eating and whatever. Um, and almost nobody is convinced. And I'm talking almost nobody is convinced by like lectures about nuances of food quality and shit like this. Like this is all mostly a circle jerk that academics have. But it's not how you convince someone to quit eating as much as they have been. Like that's the interesting what, thing. What do you think about drugs like Ozempic? Um, interesting. Um, I think like that's the GLP ones. Um, it's like uh, if they're effective for you and you lose weight, it's probably fine. 
Um, like as far as like people say, oh, I wonder what the long-term side effects are going to be. Are you kidding me? The long-term side effects of just eating too much are just death. So the reality is like, <laughs> who gives a shit what the long-term side effects are? Most of the people that we're talking about who need these things are going to die anyway. So you can either like try to lose weight with it or, and see how it goes or not. But I don't think the, the long-term side effects of that are really the big concern now. They've been used in diabetes care for quite some time, well over 10 years. So um, reasonably safe for majority of people as far as drugs are concerned. Yeah, is it better to simply eat half a plate instead of a full one and not take Ozempic? Sure. But how many people are going to accomplish this? A uh, small fraction. So, um, you know, you take the good with the bad. So you don't want to like, uh, what is it called? The, the phrase like um, perfection can sometimes be the enemy of good. So when people get like into their, like some people are really like uh, nutrition rabbit hole thinkers, right? They like, oh, I'm going to eat this type of bread and this type of olive oil and I'm going to do this type of this and like I'm not going to eat that type of sugar. That's wonderful. But those people are already usually pretty healthy already. They're just taking that rabbit hole to another extent. Like their their obsession with food has reached a level where it's like they're even hyper-focused and want to go to Whole Foods and buy like organic whatever. Um, those are not the people you're trying to reach. You're not going to reach like the vast majority of people. If you want like the best outcome for the most people, it's usually just less calories. Like I would say probably like 50% less than most Americans eat will get you there. After that, like if you can get people to do more than that, wow, amazing, right? Like, and if you can uh, convince society to maybe like make less of the bad foods, that's probably a good thing. But, um, but yeah, the human brain loves this stuff, right? So we like restaurants that make healthier food, they don't make as much money. Like period, end of story. Like you, you, why your brain wants sugar when you're hungry, when you haven't had enough sleep, your brain most definitely wants more simple carbs and sugars. So if you're sleeping less because you're working a lot or playing video games all night or whatever, you're going to eat worse stuff during the day too. It's well, well, well described um, that that happens. So yeah, like a lot of like the, the diet stuff or whatever um, is, is most definitely over complexified by most people. And if you were to ask me like, what do I tell a person that's 300 pounds with right heart failure due to severe um, obesity, hypoventilation syndrome and sleep apnea, like, Hey, I need to lose weight. What do I tell them to do? Well, like I tell them, number one, A, you're going to die unless you do exactly what I say, because they are dying. That's how they, they wind up in my ICU on a ventilator with like 100 pounds of fluid overload and right heart failure. Um, if you think your obesity is just like a fun in games, just wait till you have to die of that. It's no fun. Um, and so really, by that point, they're basically having to do something or they're as good as dead. I find, you know, it actually happens. Most people just simply die. Like they, they cannot do it. They can't actually make the shift. Um, and death, it's like Reaper is just coming for you at that point. I mean, I understand your your role as a doctor is already, you know, the people that already have this problem and how can they can they treat it? How what can they do with it? But as someone that's looking at things from the outside, I always tend to think that the problem is in parenting because that's that's where it starts. I see I I, yeah, I see true. families that are you know they they're passing on these bad habits and these. Yeah, that's basically what they are, these eating habits to children, thinking that it's normal, and then they just think it's something that runs in the family. And once they reach teenage years, 21, 22, and now they're obese, and it's like nobody ever taught them how to even start fighting against this problem. Yeah, but like, here's the other problem. Like 90% of people are bad parents, at least, if not more. So then like, what is the solution? Like better schools or like, what, what are you going to do about it? That's the thing. Like these preventative measures always sound like a great idea until you try to implement them. You're like, wait a minute. Like this is why some people advocate for 
like national changes in what people are actually allowed to eat, buy, and tax things like sugar and whatever. So people have said, well, maybe you have to sign economics incentives because natural biologic and parenting instincts don't actually work. In fact, the, the, the parenting instincts are what get the kids fat in the first place. Like a good parent well, has a nice... Because of the lack of information, fat. yeah. I mean, I guess mm, all I, I can do... I don't think it's necessarily just lack of information. A lot of people do a lot of things, even with good information. Like people know they shouldn't drink alcohol and get, you know, and wind up being um, alcoholics. People know they shouldn't do drugs and use drugs. People know that they... So the days of like lack of information, those days are long gone. That information is everywhere. Human beings just don't care, man. Like it's that simple. We are fucking crazy. Like, and I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah, so it's, it's not, prevention, yeah. like, is not as easy as it sounds. Um, it's like, oh, let's prevent this. Let's prevent that. Like, well, I mean, you're talking about relatively wealthy countries um, who can't prevent these things because the sheer availability of food is the problem. The sheer, like, uh, relatively inexpensive calories through the course of human history is the problem. So think about it this way, like what we eat today um, would have cost um, in relative terms, probably 10 times the amount of money a hundred years ago, right? Like if you look at the way people eat now, nobody eat, ate like this a hundred years ago. So we, we live in a world of relative food abundance in the West fueled by petro agro and like nine out of 10 calories that go into your food are produced with petrochemical inputs such as um, fertilizers slash, you know, nitrogen-based fertilizers and also um, like petrochemical inputs into tractors for like large track farming and everything else. And what you get is a type of food that makes you fat. And um, like, are we willing to go to a world where food is like maybe four times more expensive, where the economic incentive is not to eat as much? Hell, we probably sort of are. Like inflation does that naturally, right? Um, to some extent. So Maybe we'll get thinner if uh, food stays high in price. That's probably the only thing that'll work. At some core level, like our simple inability to access food is probably the, the, the thing that's going to work. Um, and uh, like I, I'm guilty of this. Like if I have like food for free in my cafeteria or something, like and I can go eat whatever I want and I walk by the cafeteria, I'm more likely to walk in and eat something. If I don't go that direction when I'm like leaving the building or whatever, I'm much less likely to eat junk food and go and buy, go eat stuff there. So when you look at human behavior, when the food is free, then you really start understanding like what human beings are willing to do. Whereas you'll just be willing to snack on shit just because it's sitting there, right? Like that's common. So well, it's one thing to say like it's parenting is important, but at the same time, most parents can't even eat properly. What makes, you th what makes us think we're going to teach our kids properly? We're not. Well, speaking of um, guilt and human behavior, and just the 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 context that you're that you're displaying here, um, how I mean, it's hard to keep caring, right? It it, it almost feels like this uh, this inf I mean, you took an oath as, as a doctor, so at least you have a barrier of entry. But for businessmen like me that are trying to be good parents, that are staying healthy, that are uh, educating themselves on all this information that it's out there. It's hard to not start thinking, well, maybe what we're meant to do is just profit from these people that don't care and just let them do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, like, well, first of all, you can't lose money as a business, number one. So, you know, uh, at some level, the, the things you're going to serve, if you run a, run a restaurant or whatever, is the things people are going to become and be willing to eat. And if those things include, like, I don't know, alcohol beverages with full of sugar, 
and carbs or whatever and uh, all the other junk like the reality is the stuff that makes money is clearly like the ancillary items with the excess calories for sure if someone were to only come to you and eat half a plate of food and they're willing to pay like half that amount of money for it then um or they're willing to pay you to give them less food like a weight watchers packet or like that's how weight watchers and some of those organizations work um is you're paying for prepaid meals that are like portion controlled you're literally paying for someone to give you less food and like the reality is the majority of the human race isn't willing to pay more for less food um you know and those few people that are willing to like pay for like a tiny little gourmet plate or whatever that's a small fraction of the actual city that you live in only a few people do this like in the aggregate so yeah the human the human food problem is very um strange and interesting i've gotten to the point where it's like you know what the information is out there if people would just simply rather live less long go right ahead like like why is this my problem right like at the end of the day like what are you gonna do about it really you're gonna go and like evangelize to all your neighbors you're gonna like cook for them what are you gonna do like at the end of the day like how much of an activist are you gonna be to make a change on a preventative level and the reality is most people aren't willing to do shit so there is a sort of like human inertia that goes into all of this. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting problem. Um, a substantial portion of these issues come to some fraction of laziness coupled with like our impulse control. And um, I think all of us have these issues one at one level or the other. It's not like uh, anyone's perfect in this, re in this regard. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what the, what the like global solution is. Like if you were like, the most powerful person in the world, what would you do? If you could be dictator of uh, the country, well, how would you do it differently? Um, I'm not sure how, I'm not even sure how that person would do it. Even with absolute power, it's not obvious what the solution is. Um, well, you can obviously make people eat less, I suppose, but like, then they're going to be unhappy well, in other areas and do other crazy shit. So Europe, for example, has banned a lot of ingredients that are legal still in the US and they do have a higher life expectancy and uh, way lower obesity rate like if you go to countries like italy you see people drinking wine eating chocolate eating pasta but you know the the culture there is not so automobile centric right they work right. a lot more and a lot of ingredients that they never even come in contact with so yeah but and i mean i don't mean to it's open true. another another no, can it's true. Of like there's about. probably some regional differences obviously um and there's also genetic differences too like um uh, take for example, white people live generally longer than, say, um, like I don't know, Hispanic populations that are Native American, for example, um, and that's just genetics. So it's like if you look at the genetic makeup of Europe, is it more favorable to living longer? Perhaps. Is it hard to match those populations to be sure you know exactly what features are making people live longer or less longer? Not exactly. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a tough thing to sort of modify. Uh, just because there's such big regional differences in the whole thing. Like, not only that, but if you look at, like, southern France or whatever, last time I visited, like, the weather is perfect for growing certain things, like whether it's tons of olives or tons of, um, you know, to make olive oil, which probably is the best oil out there and, you know, good for, like, certain things, right? So, you know, is that, is the rest of the world's, all the world's climate suitable for this exact food? No, not exactly. So that's the other funny thing is like, it's very difficult to prescribe. Even if you had a perfect diet, it's very difficult to grow and prescribe that at a cost effective strategy for everyone on the planet for all, you know, so it's, it's a tough, it's a tough sell.
um, not only that, but there's other weird shit too, like genetics, right? Genetics makes your taste buds for certain certain groups very different from others in terms of stuff they like to eat and not not like to eat, and um, that could play a role too in terms of like, um, say for example, if you were to have, um, you know, like mm, like Southern Mexicans try to eat Italian food, they might find it extraordinarily bland, and they might have a hard time latching onto it, even if they could grow the same things. So not all genetic groups like the same things. And our likes and dislikes play a huge role in what we tend to eat as people. Um, and that's it. So it's like the culture of food is built on our genetic proclivities of taste and like digestive and what domestic animals and plants are available in those particular areas. And like, like humans have like evolved to... I don't know, I guess live with the type of food types of sources that they happen to have in those regions. It's very difficult to disconnect the genetics from the food as far as like things like lifespan and whatnot. So like I think, but again, this all gets to like a point of, well, you just have to basically scare the shit out of people that they really shouldn't be getting this much weight. Like there's no other way to do that, but to be absolute fear. Cause like, I and mean, then if you're comfortable dying at the age of 50 or whatever, I mean, go right ahead, do whatever you want. Right. But, um, like, but like this idea that somehow you shouldn't be afraid of this, um, would be a patently absurd. It's like people spend dramatic amounts of money on like end stage chemotherapy in the last two years of their life, or they spend like a um, majority of American healthcare gets spent in the last like few years of a person's life in intensive care where you're spending all sorts of money for what exactly? Like, whereas like, if you look at the people who are relatively younger dying, they had like very, very preventable illnesses and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you could have done something about them for a much longer lifespan. Right. So it's, it's kind of like, if you look at it from a public health perspective, it's very different than an individual perspective. Where can you get the most bang for your buck on a population basis? It's probably like just simple cutting of calories. Like all well, the rest it, of it's just nuance, right? And and it's hard to understand the the worldview of that position because life is the source. Having life is the source of of everything, right? Everything that we're going through, everything that we're experiencing, the good, the bad, love, community, expression. That's why we're here. So I, I'm one of those guys that is really into just trying to stay healthy. So I monitor my my levels, my blood levels, and I do the Genova labs and try to keep my hormones in check and read the stuff that I eat, read what my family is eating. So when I go to the doctor to um, get my levels checked again every four months and, you know, the nurse is overweight and the and then the medical assistant that sees me is also overweight. And, you know, sometimes they ask me, like, why, why are you so obsessive about this, this health stuff, like your vitamin, mm -hmm. vitamin D and stuff? And I mean, I just smile, but but what I'm really thinking is like, what, why wouldn't I? Like, what do you mean? Why yeah, what you have to understand is like there is a um, phenotype of human being that is places um, food purity, this concept of like some foods are better than others, um, high on their value pedestal. Um, Jonathan Haidt's sociology work sort of talks about this. So yeah, you just happen to be in that type of human phenotype where your brain worries about this sort of thing more than other people. And so to you, it seemed like everyone else is weird. And to everyone else, you seem weird, right? That's kind of all it is. Um, it's like, a, it's just a purely a phenotypic difference. Like, yeah, look at Jonathan Haidt's work, H-A-I-D-T. And one of the core values he describes is this concept of purity. 
people on the more left-leaning tend to focus on body purity, meaning like things that go in your body. People on the right, like right-wing politically sort of, tend to like in their brain, their phenotype. Um, and politics is basically just a, a, a social construct that comes out of our genetics. And those people think um, like when it comes to purity, they think about sexual purity. Like, okay, where did you put your dick? Where did you put, you know, your like, whatever. And um, are you a virgin? Are you this? Are you that? So sexual purity is more of a thing on the right. Um, body like intake purity is something that sociologically is much more common on the slightly left. And you don't have to be necessarily like perfectly left or right politically. I'm just pointing out like there are these value differences that are slightly more leaning on one group or the other. So yeah. in other words, like if you were to find a Whole Foods, right, where are you more likely to find a Whole Foods store in counties in the United States that are more right leaning or left leaning? Pick a guess. No, that's true. Yeah. Uh, now that you yeah, put it like, that way, it'll be the, the yeah. left leaning. I'm, yeah, I'm for definitely sure. so somewhat because... of an oddball there because I do. Maybe people would consider me more right-leaning on the political side, but mm -hmm. I am a health freak and I am mm -hmm. very like sexually open, right? That's the only thing yeah. I have fun yeah. with. I mean, I don't drink, I don't smoke, you know, I try to go to the, what else am I going to do besides have a lot of sex? You, you might find yourself more in like a lot of crypto space people, the people that hang around crypto related anything tend to be a little bit more what we call centrist or are actually more libertarian, meaning like you understand both left and right, but you're sort of more leave me the fuck alone, I'll leave you alone, <laughs> the mindset, which is more libertarian, like middle. Um, it's, you're not like, you might have interesting things about what you like about your food purity, but you're not willing to force them on other people, right? Like that would be yes. more libertarian type mindset. You might have your feelings about sexual openness or purity or whatever it is you want to call it. And those things can change over time. But like, you typically aren't going to force other people to your viewpoint. That's going to be more the, the, what Heights considers like, Oh, I don't know, like more of a, you know, a little bit more on the libertarian side in the sense that while you care about these things at one level or the other, you're not willing to force them on others. So, yeah, there's interesting phenotypes. But, yeah, it's interesting to know that these phenotypes exist. I would definitely look at Height's work, watch some YouTube videos that he talks about this. He's an NYU professor. He does a good job, like, talking about, like, the five values and how different people around the world perceive these things and how relatively like consistent human beings are and their proportions of people that care about this sort of stuff. But like when you look at his work, you're like, Oh shit. Now I understand why like whole foods are always in these left leaning places. And uh, whole foods does not put stores in places that are more right leaning because they won't make enough money there. People aren't willing to spend the extra money on the, the food purity stuff. If they're more like, um, either libertarian or right. And they go to like, they drop Whole Foods definitely in wealthier places, but they also specifically drop them in more left-leaning uh, places. You'll notice this. Go to any, go look at a map of Whole Foods where they exist and you go, oh, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> like what's going on here? <laughs> it's purely like, like a psyop in a sense. They're purely like catering to their base. It, it does sound very interesting. I'm going to look into it. Heights and the yeah. five values. I'm going to look for it like H -A, that. And I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh -huh. H-A-I-D-T. Yeah. H-A-I-D-T. Like, okay. Hi. Yeah. He's got some nice lectures um, out of NYU and they, they're, they're really, really good. And I think I really recommend it from everybody. Just he wrote some other books called one was the, I think, Moral Landscape and some other ones. But like his perspective is very useful to see. Because then you understand, okay, wait a minute. Now I understand why some people vote this way. And I understand why some people behave like this and why other people like talk like this and whatever. Like you get a, a good feeling for like also the proportionality, like what proportion of people behave this way. 
Um, and that, that gives you a, a, like a view of the world that you can't get in your own head. That's the beauty of sociology in general is like you have your view of what you think about how the world works based on your mind. And then, um, but like your point was taken specifically, like you have very specific sort of understanding of like maybe what's more nutritious and what isn't. In fact, your, your diet's probably twice as nutritious as mine, probably like if I had to guess. And, and, but the thing is, you're asking a slightly different question. It's why can't we make the world better? Why can't we teach people better? Why can't we, um, why don't other people see the world the way I do? And that's a very different study, right? You understanding how something works scientifically or whatever, and then you trying to convince other people of this is two very different studies, right? Like persuasion is a complicated thing and our internal brain proclivities or like personality phenotypes or whatever you want to call it um, is very like genetically mediated. And therefore like the message that you have to tell someone that's right wing in order to eat healthy is different than the message you have to give someone who already automatically feels like eating healthy is a good idea, right? Like, so it's not as easy as just like everyone's monolithic and you can just convince everybody the message has to be different depending on the phenotype of person you're talking to. But you can see I've thought about this a lot because I deal with a lot of people that die, right? So like, I'm like, like, and I may have like only five minutes to convince you to stop fucking your life up. I don't have like a Twitter spaces for an hour to tell you what to do with your life, right? Like you're going to die if you don't do this, this, and this. You do these two, these, this one thing first and then you come back to your doctor and you tell them, I've done this thing. Now you tell me what to do next. If that person can't even do that one thing, what makes you think they're going to go read books about high fructose corn syrup, right? Like they're not going to do this. So like you want a single step that someone can accomplish, a singular goal that they can do to try to save their life, make their life longer and get on the right pathway. And if they can achieve that, if they can achieve that, then wonderful. Um, a similar thing would be like, okay, look at like HIV medications. Someone shows up to you, they have HIV. Um, understand that if you miss even 10% of your doses of your meds, you will develop resistant HIV to your drugs, right? So we already know that human beings are like 70% non-compliant with their meds. How are you going to solve the problem of preventing HIV resistance in a person if you can't convince them on the first go-round to take their pills? So if they show up to me in the hospital, they have HIV, their new diagnosis. I don't tell them, hey, by the way, um, here's your HIV pills, go take them. What I do is tell them, okay, first, you show up in the like HIV clinic you come over there and then, you know, once you have like made an appointment, gotten there and you're convinced that you're going to be ready to take pills and do what it takes, right? Then they'll start you on some pills. If you start them just in the hospital, they go home, they fuck around, they take a few doses and then they stop, they're going to have resistance problems and then now they're going to die sooner, right? So this is one of those things where it's life and death, whether you convince them to do it correctly or not. And if they don't do it correctly, well, they're just going to have a bad outcome. And um, you have to be sure that you only start them when a person is absolutely ready to use them consistently. You see what I'm saying? Like, so there's a lot of situations in medicine where like, your ability to be convincing has nothing to do with your understanding of the knowledge base of science or whatever. Like, that's just nerd yeah. talk. Like, yeah, I like, could know like endless amounts of shit about the biochemistry of like, your life. But does that actually meaningfully make me more convincing? That depends on the person I'm talking to. The audience matters. Yeah, and what you tell them and how they tell them. It ties to what you were saying, which it is really interesting. O almost like a, yeah. almost like if it were a right-wing person, you have to kind of rationalize why being and, being morbidly obese is sinful, right? And, and here's someone, the, yeah, exactly. You're, you're teaching them in terms of authoritarian 
and like symbolic relationships like sin and God and things like that. Whereas the left, it doesn't resonate so much with them, right? So that's a different thing. Um, you have to speak to them in terms of compassion and justice, which is more higher. That it's privileged. You're abusing your privilege of your. Or something your like that, right? You're being unjust to the rest of the world. There's kids in Africa starving, and you're fucking starving them by eating too much food or something. Yeah, it's a different dialogue that you're having. But here's the thing: when you meet a person in a hospital or something, you don't know what the hell their nuances are. This is not like a protracted psychotherapy session where I can sort out like how to like mind, you know, fuck you with like, you know, psyop of that's specified to you. I just know you're fat. You've gotten too gigantic. You have breathing problems. You have heart failure. You're going to be depressed. You're gonna have a hard time exercising because now your heart doesn't work. And I have to say something to you at that moment. That's going to make that light bulb go off in your head, regardless of which group you're in. Right. And that's why I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, what are the things that are common to human beings as opposed to the differences? And then if I can like tell you, so what I do is I'll tell them something like, you know, crazy they have to do, like cut their plate in half and eat only half the food that they were eating before. And then based on the questions they ask me after that, I can quickly tell what phenotype they are mentally. Like I know what psychological phenotype they are. People's questions usually reveal everything about them. And depending on the questions they ask, then I'm like, okay, now I can kind of like, direct you okay you're gonna i'm gonna be like okay you're gonna mind fuck yourself into not doing what you're supposed to do you're gonna be you know you're gonna do this you're gonna, so exactly like you were saying you have to figure out like what constitutes a sin in their mind what like what is the red button in their head that i have to push to make them make a change and it truly is life and death like if if i am unsuccessful in psyoping you into doing what you're supposed to do well, you're just going to die sooner. That's just how life goes. And um, you can call it that, call it whatever you want, manipulation, convincing, inspiration, use whatever like human term you want for this process. But me making you make a change is actually quite difficult. And it has been shown to be extraordinarily hard. And I'd say like probably most docs are at least like, you know, not even like a fraction as efficient as I am at it. How do I know? Because I've trained hundreds of doctors, right? So I know what people are capable of over large quantities of people that are very smart. So like <laughs> the number of people that are very good at this sort of thing are very limited, I would say. So the odds that you're going to have a doctor that's going to be able to convince you like I can probably is not as good. Um, and that's like, but you know, you can see how you have to really filter this stuff down. Um, it's not about what you know. It's about also about knowing things like sociology and psychology and how to convince people to change. And that's a much tougher thing. Um, to be convincing about, I'd say. Yeah, definitely hard to find hard, hard doctors to so, think about all yeah, that. Like, yeah, like, so the, you'll notice this, right? By the way, like, if you say, well, how come we haven't taught parenting better? How come we haven't taught more doctors better or whatever? It's because the reality is only a small fraction of the human race is going to be good at this sort of thing. <laughs> like, that's just the reality. So it's like, not only that, but even teachers and other other people, professionals out there, like, do you want them to be good chemistry teachers or do you want them to teach like diet health all day? Do you want them to be good? So the reality is a lot of teachers that are hired for their various skills are not hired in high schools or in junior highs to be good dietitians or something or like somehow psyop you into eating less, right? That's not what they're there for. So they're, they're there to provide you with like, you know, chemistry and physics and math or whatever. Um, and so it's not a surprise that these things, there's not enough time to cover them in school or whatever. And then you ask like, so if that's what you're learning then and you become a parent, well, like you don't really have much um, 
knowledge base in this regard, and then every restaurant you go to serves too much food. So that becomes the norm for you. Like, how many parents are going to take their kids to a, a, a restaurant and they're going to make their kids share, like, the order half and half, which is what they should do? But it doesn't look right when you're at the restaurant, right? Like, what are you doing? You're sharing a plate between these two kids. You know, it seems weird. Like, the social consequences of doing the right thing are just odd in a restaurant, right? Like, it's like, okay, here's your half of a Big Mac. Here's your half of fries. You two kids are going to share this, like, Coca-Cola or whatever. Or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't matter what kind yeah. of restaurant you go to. It, it, like, the portion sizes are just wrong, and then you're forced to like um, mediate what you do. What are you going to waste half the food on the plate? That's weird too, because like there is a social negativity to food wasting. So, like, I don't know what to. It's a cultural phenomenon. Uh, and it's well, a capitalist what, phenomenon. Funny that you say that because I've seen that. I mean, obviously, we the general consensus would be that classism is is bad, right? But but there is some sort of element of classism in those types of educations because I grew up with that. I grew up, that's kind of what I told my kids. Like, okay, whenever they say, okay, I'm full, I say, no, you're well. Then you ate wrong. You're not. We feel animal animals get full. You get satisfied. <laughs> you, you only get satisfied <laughs> and you stop eating. Uh, so it's only, and that's why you say I'm satisfied. Don't say I'm full ever again. So that's kind of what I, but I know that's kind of like, uh, it roots from a Spanish classist, uh, you know, this, yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, the human brain wants to feel full and satiated the stomach distension to a certain level, the brain feels satiated. And if the vast majority of people are satiated with more food, then the culture becomes to eat more food. Culture is just a side effect of genetics and biology. Culture is not a phenomenon in and of itself. Like you don't have human culture with bees. Bees don't have human culture. Humans have human culture because we have human DNA. And that culture is an emergent phenomenon. And a lot of it's just biologic drives that lead to those cultures. Like whether it's sexual behavior, whether it's eating, all the fundamental stuff like food and fucking whatever. These things are all um, very fundamental sort of things that um, that are rooted in our DNA to a large extent, our behaviors and whatnot. And the reality is like our DNA was never meant to eat things like high fructose corn syrup or you know, like gargantuan calories or whatever the hell else we eat on a regular basis. So that's why you get these kinds of like um, distortions is like you're, human beings were just never built for this like petro agro. You're, you're, almost, you're almost flirting with discussions of eugenics and ethno states and stuff, which is interesting, you know, to talk about. But what yeah, behavioral genetics is like a, a very controversial term. The minute you start talking about it in a Twitter space or anywhere on this planet, you become like tied into some sort of racist nonsense or whatever, but it's clearly a thing. Like it's very interesting. I mean, it would give yeah. us so much information about ourselves if we just would open ourselves up to learning about it. Yeah, human beings are basically like largely like concrete. Seventy percent of the human race has limited abstracting ability. It's like seventy percent is like mostly concrete thinkers. And when you start talking about complicated subjects like behavioral genetics you start get, being labeled as some kind of racist or some nonsense. So like these conversations don't go very far. And the reality is the human race is born to get fat and die because we have, we, we lack the intellectual maturity as a, like the general population has, lacks the intellectual maturity to handle these subjects very well. Like you, you couldn't, you can't even teach them really because like if our, our collective IQ is insufficient to sort of like soak it all in. So, like, this is why economists and such try to drive human behavior mostly through money, 
like, you know, interest rates and whatever else and like trying to manipulate people to make buy more houses, buy less houses, buy more food, buy less food. Um, and so like economic incentive drivers, the only thing that we have devised in a monetary system to sort of manipulate people in mass. Um, but it's really difficult to sort of like make individual changes or group changes without being like getting controversial very quickly. Anytime you say a group should do something, you look like some sort of totalitarian or, you know, a certain group of people just doesn't want to listen or, you know, who knows, like there's always some like sort of like flashback to any type of attempt to define people at large and say, Hey, like we're all doing this collectively poorly and we need to do it better or whatever. Like it doesn't work very well. Human beings like are, we're generally like, um, you know, we'd like to preserve our independence to a large extent above other factors, rightfully so. And some would argue that like, who really cares how long we live? Like that's another thing too. An argument can be made that that's not even the like best recipe for happiness, how long you live or whatever. The better recipe is just like, do you live free, independent in a world and then die? And I think like, if you're an American, at least that's a core value, like the relative libertarian value of like live free and die being able to is, has some merit. And then like, if you can get thinner in that context, sure. But like very few people are willing to like give up individual liberty, at least in the United States side for like perfect health or some shit like that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do believe in individual liberty and I, I kind of learned it and understood more of it when I moved to the U S cause I've only been here for about 10 years because my wife is American. But so I grew up, you know, still thinking about all this type of stuff and studying all these types of things around the world. And I would see the U.S. as that, right? Like the uh, decadent, obese country that has too much freedom, and that's why everything's in decline. But then after living here for like around half a decade mm-hmm. into it, I understood like, no, wait, that, that's not what's happening here. Like the information is here. The resources are here. The options of food, restaurants, gyms or bars, all the decisions that you can make, the options are all out there. And you decide what you want to make. just simply walk around make. your... Just yeah. simply walk around. You don't even need like gyms and special restaurants and all yeah, that. Yeah, well, but what I mean is oh. you you make your yeah. own life here out of merit, right? And then and it's kind of like what you're saying. Like, okay, humans are have their, their behavioral proclivities and let them do what they want. You do what you want. And if you make it or you don't make it, that's your choice, right? When you're when you live in uh in a context of of individual liberty. And it seems like when you try to restrict people's freedom with good intentions. After a few decades, everything everything collapses. So that's why you know that's why it's it's hard. It's hard to have the uh, take the risk of yeah. saying yes. We should take individual liberty for the sake of health, for the sake of well being. But maybe it can backfire. Like fifty it's, years. This is the problem. Like the recipe for what to do about any one thing. Like no singular recipe tends to work particularly perfectly. <laughs> Sometimes even the conclusions, like the reasons we think we should solve something are actually not the right reasons. And the solution actually doesn't actually solve the problem we think we're going to solve. And therefore you wind up with like a whole net of extra problems that you didn't even consider to begin with. So yeah, it's a weird problem in science and technology and food and everything else that there's a strange butterfly effect of, um, unintended consequences, like you said, that are very hard to sort out. And I think that's why to me, like when it comes to the nutrition element, I have considered all of this stuff, the sociology, the psychology of it, the medical aspect of it, what to say, what to do. And to me, it's like, 
I filtered out all of the noise and decided, okay, the, the like one thing you have to tell people is just eat less quantity. If you probably cut your food in half and you do that for a period of time, you're probably going to lose weight. And when people actually notice a result, they're more likely to stick with it. If you don't even notice a result, you haven't done it long enough to notice any benefit, then the odds that you're going to stay sticking with that plan is very low. Except it takes too long. Um, our mind is very fickle when it comes to like sustaining a habit. Um, and you can't gradually ease into it either, because if you gradually ease into it, you just don't make it. We've seen this in smoking. We've seen this in food. We've seen this in like every thing you can imagine. It's usually cold turkey works best. So it's like, the problem is if you make a complicated prescription of what to eat, you're like, okay, you need to do this and you can't eat that. And you can't do that. Like, it just doesn't work. Like most people, their taste and their, like their culture around what they eat, that they've built around their life, their mental model, of what it means to be alive and living is based on their food to some extent. So like the only rational thing you can do is have them eat less of the exact same thing, but not try to go nuts modifying everything they eat right off the bat. It just doesn't work. Like people just don't do it at all. Like they'll show up the next day and they haven't, they haven't even like tried one day. And so um, you, you really have to sort of watch this in action. And once you've like, from my perspective, it's like once you've talked to thousands of people about something like this, you start forming some conclusions about, wait a minute, like how effective am I here? Like, what are these people actually doing? Is like, am I saying the wrong thing? Whatever. And you start delving into more of these psychosocial issues that like, how can I manipulate someone to do this correctly? Um, becomes front and center because you realize how many times you fail. You're like, wait a minute, like, what good am I doing? And then so you wind up in the the like nihilistic strategy of, well, okay, fine. If I can't fix everybody, what am I going to do? I just have to tell people they're going to die early and that's that. And there is some level of like brutal truth that helps some substantial fraction of people change their mind, right? Like it, there's nothing like being a hundred pounds uh, fluid overloaded with extra water in your body because your right heart has failed because your weight has led to severe sleep disorder breathing. And now like you're stuck on a ventilator while you have to get a tracheostomy because you just, your brain doesn't actually send breathing signals to your lungs anymore because you're so fat, um, that somehow may convince you to eat less. But realistically, wow. most of the time that is too late. And the reason is because like when your heart doesn't work, you don't get enough circulation to your brain. And when you don't get enough circulation to your brain, you basically develop, um, like cardiac depression. And like, this is not a problem that can be solved with like Prozac or SSRIs or whatever, right? This is not a psychiatric disease. It's truly, you don't have enough cardiac output. And therefore like your ability at that point to like focus on a special diet or like exercise or some shit, you're, those days are gone at that point. You're just, it's just wishful thinking. Um, and yeah. uh, so, so getting to that point before then though, if you try to tell people before then to do these things, guess what? They're mentally not ready, right? Like they're not, like, here's the other thing too, is like, I'm an intensive care doctor. I don't see these patients. I have the most experience with death more than general practitioners. But then again, I don't have enough time to go see every single patient at general clinic and educate everybody on the planet with my understanding of death. You see the problem? So like the GP sees you for many, many years and doesn't notice you're getting dramatically worse. I see you at the end of your moments and I'm like, dude, you're about to die of this, right? And it's much more serious by then. So there's like, there's a selection bias to who I happen to see versus who your daily doctor might see. It's a different yeah, thing. It is, it is very complicated. Yeah. And it's only so much we can do as individuals. And especially without 
you know, disregarding ourselves or our family, which is the most important thing at the end of the day, right? At least start with yourself, then go on to your yeah. family that, you know, do. And, Even you know, that, obviously you have the moral responsibility to sell this to people as a doctor, but it's not your exactly. fault whether they follow it or not. Even Exactly, exactly. And I don't lose any sleep if someone doesn't do what I say. I only lose sleep if I don't try to convince them. So if I try and I fail, okay, fine. That's their business at that point. I'm not their, you know, jail jailkeeper or whatever. I'm not their judge. I'm not their police officer to do these things like um, they have to sort of make that decision for themselves. But like the students I train, right? Like not everyone that, that trains under me is going to necessarily go into critical care medicine. They may go into general practice or family medicine or whatever. So if they see what I'm talking about and they see plenty of death regarding these issues, then in their brain, it cements what their parents never taught them and what they didn't learn in school, right? In fact, half of doctors are overweight. What am I, who are we kidding here? Um, so the reality is that like, when doctors see that, they see the death and destruction at age 45, 50, 55, and they see what the consequences are, then they can go back and go, oh, okay. Because remember, doctors are people too. You go to medical school and you learn about medical diseases and you teach like 20 and 30-year-olds like something about 40 and 50-year-olds. They don't, they don't put themselves in those shoes at that, at that point. To them, like everything they read in a book to, to students and whatever is pure theory. It's no different from you reading it on Google or whatever. When, when, until you have actually seen a bunch of people die, it's pure theory. You see what I'm saying? So like even the students and stuff that don't go into this particular field, if they don't get enough experience with seeing a lot of people die, they don't believe it can happen either. Like in their head, they don't see the importance of doing what you're talking about, which is like maybe dietary modification or whatever. And certainly not at the age group that it matters. They might notice when they're older and their family members start dying. So like a doctor that gets like 40 or 50 might start noticing. But by then, they themselves are overweight. And uh, they themselves um, have not lived the life they're supposed to. So one thing that's for sure I've learned is that 100% all of human beings are hypocrites. Every single human being on this planet is a hypocrite about something, either in magnitude or in specifically their core beliefs, in fact. So nobody's perfect, even at their core, like the thing they care about the most, they're not perfect at. And, um, you know, it's like the, the degree and spectrum and amount of hypocrisy varies. That's all you have to remember about human beings. Like there's not much else to say about it. Right. Like, and if you, if you probe closely, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. Like there is no, no, person. no, I get it. I get it. There's 100%. no perfect I'm, person about anything. I am hooked on nicotine. Right. So that's been yeah. the one for me that, and I think it's related to my blood. I can't regulate my blood pressure and I know it's the nicotine and I just, I just play dumb every day. But you, you but know? you notice how, like, on the one hand, you were worried about things like high fructose corn syrup. On the other hand, like smoking exactly. will kill you much quicker. And I mean, I, see, I vape, see? right. But even that, even that rationalization is just bad. as bad. Yeah. No, it's not just as bad. It's not as bad as cigarettes for sure. So I wouldn't worry about that. And nicotine by itself is more like, um, is more like caffeine. Um, if you like the tar that you get from actual cigarettes is worse for sure. As far as lung disease, cancer, um, heart disease, um, plaques in your arteries, et cetera. So I think vaping will probably be a net positive compared to regular smoking. That's my sense. Um, you know, like Mine I do, my, I think, too, my yeah. But my blood pressure is like at one, one thirty, one thirty nine over eighty seven is kind of my average. So it uh, may not be too related to actual smoking, though. It's like caffeine and that don't have too much relationship. You probably just have a procliv proclivity to high blood pressure. Um, that just happens to some people as a natural phenomenon. Is it gonna kill me sooner, or it depends? 
yes, hypertension always makes people live less long. So like, um, yeah, you want to, you want to control it usually, um, as early as you can typically for as long as possible. With medication or just with, yes. uh, yeah, the average high blood pressure patient needs three drugs on average. Um, people like, oh, I'm going to do the natural thing or this and that, like, okay, but like, <laughs> good luck with that shit. There's a reason why we have those meds. They definitely make you live longer. Um, yeah. Hypertension control is like a clear cut thing. Like, yeah, if you're consistently staying above 135, yeah, you probably should be on at least one, like something like amlodipine. Okay. Is good. It's thanks, cheap. Thanks it's, tip, I will. it's like almost everyone tolerates it and it works for almost everybody. It's like, you know, amlodipine is usually first drug for most hypertensives at this point. But yeah, but well, yeah, I appreciate the tip and I appreciate you letting yeah, me be out. part of this conversation, by the way, it's been, oh yeah, for sure. We're just sort of shooting the shit here. Like <laughs> we started the day kind of talking crypto shit and just like veered off into la la land here. <laughs> so like, um, speaking of which, like what happened today, we were chit chatting about this and that, and I've had a day off here, so I'm just sort of messing around, but, um, yeah, it looks like everything's sort of settling in here. People are like, Oh, is it like sell the news for the, for the ETF and whatever? Yeah, sure. Like a bunch of people bought Bitcoin or whatever for the, ETF pump or whatever they got that BTC went to almost 50k and probably some fraction of people dumped their coins and shorted and whatever it drops again no big deal um, but this is pretty mild like we're only at the 50 day moving average of BTC so this is a normal correction in my opinion nothing well, special this is how I see it if the, the these types of like the ETF and all the like BlackRock and everybody I was about to get into the the ETF train, they have, they already have a strategy as to how to enter, right? And they're, they're going to have, they either have or will have a lot of orders to fill. And they've been at this game for over a hundred years. So they're not going to fill their orders at 65K. In fact, they're probably not comfortable filling their orders at 46, 47. And if they s just fill them up there, it's going to quickly go up to 56, 57. So they have a million tricks in their book as to how to avoid slippage by pushing the price down. So they're just pushing the price down, scooping up all those stop losses of people that were trading, thinking Remember, that Bitcoin was going to go up ETFs are not about profiting about uh, like a market, traditional market making where you're profiting off the price of the coin. ETFs are about simply selling you a coin and making the fees. And they make just free money that this, like there's like, <laughs> how much does it cost them to store BTC? Nothing. Uh, a little bit of like whatever minuscule to Coinbase or whoever, and then they just make the fee. So they just pick it up at whatever level. Like they don't keep a lot of excess stock of BTC in order for you to come buy it. The price of the ETF I've noticed so on Friday, um, for example, the BTC, the FBTC, and um, even the GBTC um, price fell. Um, we were talking about this morning, like it fell to like 37 K BTC is what it's like priced at on Friday after hours. And BTC now is like at what? 42 ish. Right. So, um, like the price of the ETF is undervalued right now relative to the cost of the price of BTC over the weekend, which is funny. So what will happen is that will rebalance at some point. They have to, um, I think the ETF like automatically rebalances price at some date. I don't know exactly how that works, but um, sometimes you'll be able to arb the difference. So BTC on the open market is 43 and you're able to get it on FBTC on Fidelity for 
37k well sure get yourself some at that point you're getting free free btc essentially <laughs> because it's it's going to rebalance to the correct value either way so you can arb this difference it's kind of cool actually so at this point like the correct thing to do and for any future btc buys or sells would be to pick btc where it's cheaper if it's cheaper on the etf get that if it's cheaper in actual btc get that what do you care at that point unless you're like um specifically buying to self-custody or something but if you're just talking about price action or whatever it's pretty good it's pretty good to have these etfs it's a nice little extra uh game you can play <laughs> with the uh with the price of them um and that's well, going to be another interesting phenomenon because you'll have times where like for example btc over the weekend may dump but the price that closes on friday evening may be higher and you may be able to like get a early um pre-market entry or something um for btc like the next monday and you might be able to get it cheaper or something right so that's interesting it is um, interesting. It'll and is it martin luther king day this monday am i right and I don't mar know. markets close this monday they might be and if that might be why like there was a sell-off on friday with the thinking that hey like you know i'm gonna sell my well it's funny because it just opened on friday or whatever but um like was it thursday or friday it opened i don't remember but um yeah it's interesting that thursday. the price is already depegged from the reality of the actual price so etfs are weird in this regard um but uh yeah as far as like btc corrections are concerned um it's gonna be a lot easier to buy btc in your etf and it's gonna be great because if like i have a stock that pumps 20 percent and btc drops 20 percent, well fuck it i'm gonna sell the stock and buy btc right because like i can arb the difference of 40 percent delta i mean what the hell right like so you it's helpful to have the volatility of crypto within a stock portfolio because now you can have something going down while something else is going up that's a really powerful thing um it's an extraordinarily useful trading instrument at that point to make a lot of money uh, very easily <laughs> so it's kind of uh yeah as long as you're willing to like ride that volatility back and forth and let's and say learn, btc and let's say btc which... runs right let's say btc you're up oh i got i made up 30 percent on my bitcoin and you're like okay that's good enough oh look over here exxon mobile is down 10 percent, right you can just swap over and now you're making dividends on your exxon mobile stock and you have like converted you know uh, expensive thing for a simpler cheaper thing um within your brokerage account pretty cool stuff not to mention like if you're in a brokerage account right now um just cash makes uh like five percent dividend five percent yield right four to five percent on money market so you're making high yield in cash you can jump into btc whenever you feel like it you can jump into stocks whenever you feel like it and you can cycle that shit when things go um you know one direction or the other so it's almost beneficial to have a little bit of each in place so you have some cash some btc some stocks or whatever and then you swap between them whenever the opportunity arises um assuming you're willing to pay the short-term capital gains or whatever um but uh if you're in long-term capital gains even better right so it's almost beneficial to have some btc as like fbtc and fidelity for example have it hold it a year and then like play with it after it's in long-term capital gains um and do that with your stocks as well so you can cycle stuff like swing trade it over multiple years and then that can really make you quite a lot um, without much taxes so another little trick there 
Yeah, you're convincing me to get into all of that because I usually just stay on self-custody, like you were saying, and, and trade on on crypto exchanges. Now, I haven't gotten into stocks, but um, with all of that, mm -hmm. I, I would, it's just so much to learn and to do. I think, know, it's, I I think it's worthwhile having a stock account also. Um, and the reason is because like, um, as long as you're buying the dip on something, what do you care what it is? Like, it doesn't have to be crypto. Um, the reality is you're trying to find something cheap for the day. You're trying to find something relatively cheaper with more upside than something else. It's opportunity cost. And you're trying to expose yourself to the most possible opportunity available at that moment that you're buying whatever you're buying, right? Like you don't really care what it is so long as it's a good investment, usually. Unless you're an activist for something or you specifically want to buy something because you want to support it. That's fine. But um, outside of that, it's like, you know, you want to have exposure to lots of different price exposure so you can get whatever is cheap that day. And that's kind of what my strategy is. And then if like, like, and then if it's something that's cheap and the dividend is high and the price to earnings ratio is low, well, perfect. You know, maybe get a little bit more of that that day or whatever. And so, um, yeah, it's like good to be, the diversification is not so that you have, um, like something that doesn't go to zero. Well, that's a side effect. The diversification benefit is you always have something dipping that you can buy that you have, you're ready to push the button on, right? Because you can't, like, even if stock was down, you can't push a button to own it if you don't, if you're not ready, right? Like, you don't have a trading app you look at every day. You don't have an account opened up, right? Like, you just miss all those opportunities. Just let them, you just let them fly by. So it's better to have, like, a crypto, plenty of crypto exchanges, some stock exchanges. And then you kind of have, like, Yahoo Finance is really good in this respect in that you can put crypto and you can put stocks on there. And you say, okay, wait, look, what's down the most today? Oh, you know what? ExxonMobil's down 10% and BTC's up 10%. Okay, well, I'm going to go buy the ExxonMobil stock then. Why the hell do I want to buy the thing that's already gone up, right? So just that's what the benefit of that is. Works really well. Um, so, yeah, it's like you don't need to be some kind of like a stock genius or some shit either. This stuff's pretty easy. Like yeah, these apps are like good advice. I'm going to do These do apps like. are really simple too. Like they're not like, it's not Which like. Which one do you like? Um, if you're in the US, I think Fidelity is one of the better platforms. Um, okay. They have FBTC. They have um, um, uh, what else they have? They have like, you know, margin account. So you can, you can like, not just so you can borrow, but like you can settle account, settle faster. Um, you can buy and sell a little bit quicker on a margin account. And um, so what you want to do is open a traditional account and call them and add, tell them to make it a margin account. Not because you're going to borrow money off it, but because it's uh, beneficial to you to have that capability. And then basically you just throw some cash in that account and then start buying a few things here and there. And really the thing with stocks is generally um, buy the dips on whichever one is down the most is what I do. So like I'll have 150 things and on a list and whichever one is down that day, I'll buy a share of that, right? Like, so I kind of, I don't average in just randomly. I average in on the thing that has the, uh, like you know, maybe the worst performer for the day for some reason, like, right. So like that way you can pick up discounts over and over and over again. That's the key. So, cause it's not so much about which stock and whatever. Um, it's about access to discounts, access to dips, access to recs, recs charts. That's what you want. <laughs> if you can do that for years, you're going to do great. Typically. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, 
It sounds good. I, yeah, I, I've been learning and going a lot into day trading, which is different, right? Not just looking at the graphs and trying to go in and out of a trade pretty quickly. But this sounds like a more um, long-term um, type yeah, of deal with stocks that can also work. Day trading is uh, quite a bit more time-consuming and probably generally more dangerous in terms of um, your like precision ability to sort of like pick what's about to go up and down i don't i've been doing chart shit for a long time and um i think the predictive ability of most of that is pretty dubious at most i'll do swing trading which is like okay such and such price is at like multi-month support level you know and i'll get some there right and so like i'm not day trading it anymore um if something pops a lot really quickly, like, oh, look, that went 30% today or 2x today, I might sell it for that reason, but, and then cycle it into something that hasn't pumped. I but, go hard on the one minute. I guess I'm a, I'm a dopamine junkie because it is, it yeah. is riskier and more dangerous. And <laughs> that, takes that's what you are. Fun. <laughs> that's what you are. Like, it's, it is more risky and fun. Um, so you're like having to use leverage or you're just using spot. One of the, but Yeah, I leverage. Yeah. So yeah, if you do what you like to do, I mean, so, as long as it's entertainment, you know, it's whatever. If you have to like move large sums of money, um, I'm not planning on, you know, going at scale with like some kind of day trading or whatever. I just don't think it's reliable enough um, to do it um, consistently enough to where you're making money. Um, it's a lot easier to make. Um, like if you're making money 99% of the time, that's better than doing it like you know, 40% of the time as a day trader or whatever. So I think it's like, uh, well, it's a lot easier to make um, money as a swing trader long-term. I've been studying a lot about like day trading, but now I'm trying to study myself because I, I see that I get consistently different results when I'm paper trading or I'm demo trading than when I'm actually trading. So I need to start identifying what changes in my perception and my decisions when I'm not trading actual money. Because I make way more money that way. And there's mm. something there that I need to learn. So that's why I've been demo trading and only trading for real a little bit. Because I need to identify that what, you know, ourselves, like you were saying, our own mind is, or you were implying, our own mind is, is the enemy most of the time. Right. Yep. Having some kind of a, a tactic that works long term. It also depends on how much you plan to pay attention right like if i'm working and stuff i'm not paying attention to crypto or anything i finish my job i do that and then i come hang out but um like yeah to day trade consistently it's like uh yeah it's a whole nother ball game yeah that's why i got into it because i mostly just work from the computer now with my new startup so i just have four screens in front of me and meetings all day so i thought like well might as well get into uh, something else right that that's how everyone gets wrecked <laughs> that's how you lose all your it's like it works out for a while and then it's like you, you wind up getting greedy and stuff it's like uh like i don't know i it's really really sort of easy to make money if you're paying attention um like for example october to the middle of last year was just all stocks for me almost buying tons and tons of stocks and um like every time one would dip more i would get more of it um every time i'd post a chart it would be like some stock that has wrecked or something and um most of those are in the green now and um you know like 99 percent of the portfolio is in the green and i'm earning dividend on all of that shit and now the dividend comes in i can spend it on whatever stock i want and then 
or I can buy crypto with it, or I can just go, you know, go on vacation with it or whatever. Um, so the, there was like a time where in, from October onward of last, not this October, but like the October before that, um, onward where it was like a primo time to be like picking up dividend stocks because they were so crushed so badly. Um, and like, was it better than buying crypto? Not necessarily, but it was a different, you know, different type of portfolio. Um, and, um, you know, I just kind of picked up those things and did you know, all of them have done well. And, um, the vast majority are in the green by buying all the way to the very, very bottom and then just holding. And so now what I'm going to do is like, so the stock portfolio that I started in October, a couple of Octobers ago is now like in the green by like 25% or something. So not bad. And then, um, uh, those are all earning dividends. So if I want to just keep earning dividends, I can just hold them, right? Don't worry about paying any taxes on the gains. Why bother? Um, but if BTC takes a nosedive, let's say it dips to, you know, mining cost of 20K or some shit, um, then I can then sell my stocks in the green and dump them into Bitcoin at that point on FBTC and I'm good to go, right? So like, um, yeah, so I'm watching for that kind of deal of the century. Um, if BTC takes a big nosedive, um, I'm going to make a lot of money, like not a little bit, like a whole lot again. So like, um, it's kind of funny that way. Um, so the dry powder in my portfolio right now is the stock portfolio because it's almost all in the green. So, and it's all earning dividends. So I can sell it if I want to, I can leave it there if I want to. Um, if an opportunity arises where it makes sense to sell a lot of that and buy BTC, I can now right there in the portfolio itself. Uh, pretty cool. Like, you know, so I think like, can BTC drop to the cost of mine, which after happening is like 20 to $24, it's possible. Um, 200 day moving average for BTC is like 33 K. Can it drop to that? Sure. When people say, Oh, it's never going to go back down again. I'm like, um, like maybe, <laughs> like, but if it did, what are you going to do about it? Right. Are you prepared? And if you're not, well then you know what you're doing. Um, so yeah, like, uh, I think, uh, if you're given the gift of like 20k BTC for some reason, are you going to take it? Because from there, the upside's going to be really high, right? Um, um, or what yeah, are you gonna do? I, I think I'd get at least one if it does that. I mean, yeah. I see, I see BTC more of a store of value. So I don't. If it goes up or down, it, it might have some sort of emotional toll on me temporarily. But I wasn't planning on selling I would, it anyway. I would argue right? that BTC is only a store of value if you buy it low. Like, um, the, I consider all proof of work chains. The bottom is the store of value, not the top. So if you bought BTC at like sub 20K this last season, you have a store of value coin. If you bought it at 50K, you are currently in bag holder coin territory yeah. and you're not necessarily in storing anything. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I did like, buy it around 20 something, but, but I yeah, do. Uh, and I don't know, it, it maybe. If you bought it at 50, you're currently in backholder uh, status, but in eight, four years, you're probably going to be more in the store of value. True, I mean, I think... but on the other hand, if at 50 I bought Litecoin instead, I'm actually in store of value status now already. So the thing is, like, even in the store of value coins, which is any of the proof of work, um, you can do better in certain timeframes and some versus others. And um, like, for example, LTC went up while BTC was dropping 20%, right? Or whatever, 
50k to 40k. Um, so I bought LTC at that moment. I did not buy BTC at 50k or whatever, right? Like that wasn't my thing. Um, so yeah, like even any given moment, there's certain opportunities that are better than others. And, um, yeah, like the laser eyed people get really lazy about their, um, their analysis in terms of what they buy and when, but, um, but you know, how so. do you keep up with it? Like, because right now we've covered, you know, health, staying healthy and mm -hmm. being a good parent and being uh, good <laughs> with our, with, with our own jobs. Right. And we've covered, um, the crypto world and we're we well, covered stocks and now we've crypt, covered like crypto and stocks like i've been doing this for like around almost 25 years now so oh that's yeah, like that's to me why, it's like yeah. second nature yeah i can wake up look at the thing for three minutes and like understand what the chart pattern looks like where it is i don't have to chart anything like the little post you know things i post on twitter that's just for like because it's cool to post things because pictures like people want to see but like do i need them anymore to like visualize where we are in a chart barely like I can tell on log scale, like where we are relative to where and whatever. So yeah, it's not, it doesn't take me that much research anymore. It really doesn't. And I'll have a list of like 150 stocks or so that I have. And I'll just pull up the, what I'll do is I'll go into my Fidelity portfolio and I'll just sort by like um, biggest percent change for the day and whichever dropped the most, I'll buy that one. And then like, if I see um, one that's slightly higher dividend than the other, I'll buy that one instead. Like even if they're, it didn't drop as much, right? Because I'm getting dividend on that one on top of that. So, so like I don't have to do very much. Like between the Fidelity app and like maybe CoinGecko and maybe like TradingView, I'm done. Like I don't need anything else. And like in those 20 simple. years, you don't have acquaintances that do well with day trading? They all do bad? Mm, I do, but I pretty much beat everybody. So it doesn't matter. I've been at this okay. a very long time. Like, so by beating everyone, I mean, like, like, I mean, shit, like I bought Apple at the bottom of the dot com crash. So you can only imagine, right? Like, just use your imagination. Yeah. Um, at that point, I bought like a bunch of shit at the bottom of the 2008 financial crisis, too. Um, I bought a bunch of banks uh, that I posted all the whole time when everyone was like saying the banking world was going to die, like last, like last year, right? So I bought all those, and those were all up like anywhere from. 30 to 80 percent some of my sold as some i kept um like i just sold bank of america in like 30 percent gain i believe um but like the point is like um like day trading is not as effective as this and it's way more um time consuming and um like is there um a description to the the type of trading that you're describing that you do is it like a common like does it in a sentence? I, think I just I just consider like myself buying wrecked charts, like whichever chart has like completely been destroyed. P to E ratios are the lowest with the highest relative dividend yields. Um, I tend to get more of that, um, and and stocks that are not likely to go to zero, right? Like I do have occasional stocks that do go to zero, but like I trend I way more prefer the ones that don't and uh, pick those when they're really down. Uh, so I guess you'd call that a value investor usually. Okay. So value like, like right now, I'm not buying any stocks outside of whatever's in my IRAs and whatever, right? Um, so we have already plenty of exposures to like um, um, index funds or whatever it is, right? So at this point, at this moment, all of my allocations are going into crypto. We're going into uh, like a halving year. We are like every dip I can see, I'm trying to like grab some. So right now, if you look at Litecoin's chart, it looks perfect to buy. Um, Dogecoin's chart looks perfect to buy. Um, I'm not chasing all the stuff that's already gone up. 
um, if something has gone up and pulled back, like I like Zephyr, for example, so it went to like 52, it pulled back to like 17 right now. So nice 70% pullback. So that's a perfect buy. Um, so picking up some of that. Um, so I'll, I'll pick the stuff that has like retraced substantially or like, you know, but it depends. Yeah, like, so, so you pick something that has a retrace substantially and, you know, has other confluences to make you think that it's going to recover in a healthy way. It's not going to go to zero. And then you swap out of whatever you did in the past that already has gains. So kind of get a yeah. double discount on it and that's just rinse and repeat every once a week. Right. Like for example, um, like, I don't know. I bought injective at like $25. It went to like, maybe I sold it at like 40 ish something. Um, and I was like, you know what? I was going to hold it for more. But then I was like, wait a minute. Like, this other thing over here dumped now and is at lower risk than injective is for a downturn. So I'm going to move that to here. So the rotation is to safety in stuff that's otherwise going to pump if the market pumps anyway, but the downside has already been t like, you know, most of the downsides already been taken out of it. Right. Cause the cells, the cell pressure is down or like it's like reached seller exhaustion levels, right? 70% retracements and stuff like that. Um, so at that point, I don't need to make a whole lot more because I'm already in the green. If I make another 2x, awesome. If I don't, if it just sits there, fine, awesome, right? Like what you don't want to do is lose money. So the key is like always be moving up if possible. And there's definitely ways to do this for sure. And um, fundamentals do matter. Like certain chains are much more likely to catch a bid than others. So if you're like, if you're a bag holder on something, like for example, I bought Solana at... Uh, like 103, like thinking it was going to break resistance at 126 or whatever the you know next fib level was. So I picked it up and um, it did go up to like right to 123. And then now it's down to like 93 or something. So, um, but at the same time, like, eh, if it goes down some, whatever, am I going to be a bag holder for a little while? Probably, but it's popular this cycle. So is it likely to break prior high or reach close to prior high? Yeah, sure. That's a 250. So I'm like, fuck it, let's just hold it and don't worry about it, right? I don't have to sell it down. So it's like, if you buy something at a certain level, how comfortable are you being a bag holder at that if it goes down? Are you going to add more? So I added a little bit more. Um, are you going to like double down on it, get double the amount? Are you going to scale in? Like, what was your thesis? And if you're like, ah, I just allocate a little bit to Valhalla or zero then you don't have to follow it at all again. So it depends on your thesis for that coin. Like, do you want to be an owner of that coin for years? Or is it a coin you plan on making a quick flip? And those types of things uh, should be, you should try to make clear to yourself at the very beginning. Like, what's your strategy for that coin? Yeah, that makes sense. Same with it's stocks and shit, right? Like, if I buy a stock and it's like PE ratio is two, and its dividend yield is, you know, 10% or something, right? There's a lot of stocks like that, by the way. And now those exact same stocks have like maybe gone up 50% and their PE ratio is higher and their dividend relative yield if I bought now is lower. I'm not going to sell that stock because it's showing strength. My position's in the green and I'm making free dividends, right? At a, at a rate of like 10%. Why would I want to sell this thing? Like I'm going to leave it alone. If it's like something that doesn't have a dividend and popped a lot, like I bought some stupid shit like Foot Locker, like the, the shoe store. <laughs> Like, and I'm like, I sold it positive 40%. Um, I bought Kohl's, the supermarket, you know, the store 
I was up like 40%, um, sold it, um, sold Bank of America. These are all things that have a little bit of dividend, but shit, like, you know, I just wrote it because I knew I bought the bottoms, but like I didn't, or close to the bottom, and I knew I'd make an upside, but I don't really want to own Foot Locker stock. Fuck that. I just bought it just because I thought it was a half decent trade, and I'm like, I sold out of them, right? So some things I don't want to keep forever. Um, like, I'm not so sure Foot Locker is going to exist 20 years from now. I don't know. Uh, maybe it will, maybe it won't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like Macy's was a ex good example. I was up like 40% because like some company decided to buy Macy's. Um, I bought it at close to the bottom or all the way down. And I was just kind of holding it thinking, eh, maybe only a few stores are going to be still alive in America. And I just picked a few of them like Macy's and Kohl's and Target or some shit. And they all went up and I sold them all because they grew so quickly. I'm like, oh, if I can bag 40% here and stock, like keep that. Do I really need to worry about the long-term health of the company at that point? No. So that's the benefit of buying the bottom of the markets is that like they pop when just because of speculative price movement, like the fundamentals could be dog shit, but they pop anyway. Right. And those kinds of, um, that's what it means to be buying it overbought, oversold conditions in like value investing. If you're buying so low that like, you know, any speculative pop or, change in fed policy or some bullshit leads to the price to go up well what do you care at that point just sell it when it goes up um, if you you know it's not a bag that i was really married to on the other hand if it's like um i have a pretty large amount of petrochemical related stocks and things um those are things i don't try to time them i just simply add to them when the prices go down and then leave them and then they just keep making dividends right that's a different strategy um because they're you know oil companies aren't going to zero probably anytime in the near future. So therefore, like, you you know, it's a store of value at that point, right? And so. and by the way, speaking, I mean, this is a little bit of a, well, back to another topic, but I'm trying to cut out the rest of my Saturday to enjoy it. And I can't find the height. Did you say H-A-I-D-S-T? No, H-A-I-D-T. Jonathan oh, okay. Hyde. 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 Okay. Yeah, pretty good lectures. Oh, here on it is. Hi, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. So I it's got like a... you want to look at like uh, values or like moral landscape. I don't remember which talk. I should have bookmarked somewhere. He does oh, a very I'll good look, one with. I'll look through But it's where he compares values, like. Yeah. He, he, he identifies like the main core values of humanity based on sociologic work and then looks at clusters that like tend to define people who identify left, right, and libertarian. That's kind of the gist of the study I and mean, just of nice. the uh, sociology study. It's pretty cool. Um, Huge, huge amount of work that he put into it. So he's kind of a big TED Talk type of character. Don't watch the TED Talk, though. It's like too superficial. <laughs> okay. Uh, TED is also designed typically for left-wingers. Like the people in the audience yeah. at TED are usually left-wing crowd. And like you'll notice that the bias of the speaker is always left-leaning and um, the jokes are left-leaning. And um, I tend to prefer these types of talks being more like not catering to one political group or the other. Right. Yeah, a little bit like, more objective. Well, as, yeah, as a little bit exactly. We can. Where, where you're not worried, like, is the left going to be upset with me? Is the right going to be upset with me? Are the libertarians going to be upset with me? Right? Like, I like that. Um, the talks that like he does, where it's like he just presents the data and just just demonstrates like how people behave and is not worried about how he's he's perceived yeah. in the particular audience he's talking to. Well, well I gotta have my height. Um, tab yep. open my fidelity tab open. I gotta go cool. grab a, another vape. For the day and uh but <laughs> i appreciate day, you having me up here man yeah it's good been chat. fun yeah good chat Thank you. um yeah hopefully everyone gets something out of these combos and fun um yeah. anyway um yeah i think i'll do the same thing drop off and 
I've got to go do some work for this year's tax year uh, for my company and stuff. I usually do our own, um, I do our own taxes and things for it. So I got to get to work on that with my son. So I'll catch you guys later. All right. Teaching my teenager how to take weekend. care of the company. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Motherfuckers screaming out loud Looking for mercy Before they find themselves Working a corner down in Jersey What could be worse? Misrepresenting the first Come first serve Mentality stuck in the burbs I'll be numbing up first Before discovering what works And we'll see what other kinds of trash Is under the dirt We rape and plunder the earth Sit and wonder about the worth and plate Ring around the rosy while the thunder is served Motherfuckers walking around here looking faceless Trying to make a living Southern friendship bracelets Dead ends dragging out the max amount of payments Red down days got them acting all bankless Yo fam, what? Check these token knocks They probing this bear, flexing broken honest I had to lay my soul down, I'm just roasting knotters And then to end a long day, eleven bowls of chronic Never known the politic, I was born to frolic It's been my policy to pollinate all over the plot We got a lot of apologists jumping in at the top We like to measure their velocity before they hit rock bottom Over impossible loss, it's all moss And I'm liking the odds Bond doing the morning, forming mycological bonds Flick the cap, yo, the road is highly involved Flip a coin, diary falls Motherfuckers screaming out loud, looking for mercy Before they find themselves working a corner down in Jersey What could be worse? Misrepresenting the first come first serve Mentality stuck in the burbs I'll be numbing up first before discovering what works And we'll see what other kinds of treasures under the dirt We rape and plunder the earth Sit and wonder about the worth and play Ring around the rosy while the thunder is served Trying to figure out the max amount of dinner lace Stacked in non-toxic just to get a better place Smacking on the hostage like the shit is play for keeps Clowns white knighting all these Maybelines. They call it implausible when model after model keeps on Ripping off the coat and going full throttle beats Tearing apart your community All these low hanging fruits bearing zero liquidity Got a planet in reach coming standard to each I'm on the back ten stargazing after the siege Commanding all the management to grab a few seats And then we'll round up the beasts and send a messenger east Y'all better sign a release when I'm bumping these beats Hands up if I got motherfuckers drumming the streets Yo, we got a few dubs, we got a couple defeats And if you're coming for the king, you better have some of each Motherfuckers fuckers screaming out loud, looking for mercy Before they find themselves working a corner down in Jersey What could be worse? Misrepresenting the first come first serve Mentality stuck in the verbs I'll be numbing up first before discovering what works And we'll see what other kinds of treasures under the dirt We rape and plunder the earth Say and wonder about the worth and play Ring around the rosy while the thunder is served Ten spaces.